Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're uh, continuing with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I've got a strange title here, but as we go through it, uh, we'll come to the reading that explains it. And the title is, As If Not, Freedom from Anxiety. And the idea here, we might read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as a commentary on Galatians 3.28. Galatians, you know, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, it's not that ethnicity, social status, gender are obliterated. And I think it, he says this in this chapter, chapter 7 of Corinthians, that we are to live as if these things are no longer determinative. They're no longer binding. So let's read together. Chapter 7, verse 29 to 32. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away, but I want you to be free from concern. It's not simply that Paul believes world history is coming to an end, and so there is no use changing up the jet deck chair, so to speak, on the Titanic. But rather he's describing freedom from anxiety. Anxiety is created by putting too much importance on marriage, on social status, on ethnicity. These can constitute a world for you. This world is passing away. And Paul may be using the end of the world language metaphorically to relativize these worldly things. So clearly some of the Corinthians thought that when Paul said no male and female, well, they were obliged to give up sex or to give up on marriage. Paul says to the contrary. He declares that the gospel is meant to free us from anxiety about such distinctions and calls us to find our identity in Christ rather than in gender, marriage, or social status. These things are not destroyed, but they do not pertain to one's primary identity. So the great secret is that all of these things in taking on their proper place can be enjoyed for what they are. In giving up the world, so to speak, the world is returned unto us. And Paul's primary principle is, and he'll say this several times in this chapter, 
Do not try to change your position. Remain as you are, he says. And even this, he will explain a little bit what he means. His recommendation for marriage and sexuality, I think, is a particular instance of his overall principle of salvation. Salvation is deliverance from a death-dealing orientation to the world, to the law. And we might think of the law, you know, when we say the law, it just means the law can be a kind of bad infinite. We are never satisfied with the way things are in our immediate particular circumstance. Our tendency is to destroy what we have so as to attain that which we do not have. This is the bad infinite, the pursuit of the infinite. It is a purely negative, a negation of life, a negation of the particularities of life. So life can be lived in continual dissatisfaction and desire. And this is not really living. It is a continual departure from the present moment, from the present circumstance, from one's present social station, from one's present financial status. And Paul's recommendation is summed up, remain as you are, don't worry about it. Only as the Lord, he says, has assigned to each one, in verse 17, as God called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. The way in which we receive eternal life through the particular world is not by getting rid of the particular circumstances in which we find ourselves, but by fully embracing this particular circumstance. But one can only do this by recognizing we are not defined by our circumstance. As he says, not, there's ne neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female in the body of Christ. As he says in chapter 12 of Corinthians, by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, uh, we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And so in the, the end of this chapter, even about slavery, were you called a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. In the, he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men, 
Brethren, each one, again he says it, is to remain with God in the condition in which he was called. And if you think about this as an exchange, this exchange, the former, the former slave is actually accorded, accorded the higher rank in the body of Christ. All, he says, regardless of worldly social status, are now under the authority of Christ. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let that trouble you. Now, he says, if a chance for liberty should come, well, take it. So Paul's point is not to insist that people remain in their present status, even you know, to the extent of refusing emancipation, which in fact was an impossibility. His point is to reassure his readers that they should not be troubled about their present social location and they should focus their attention on serving God wherever they stand in the social order. And so our tendency is to continually trade one estate for another. I believe this is death. This is the drive to death. It's the lure, the excess, which draws us out of life, beyond life, into what the New Testament calls a living death. Sin, by definition, is this excess. The striving which burdens the human race, you know, even from the fall of the first couple. The excess is what pushes us to continuing renovation, continuous consumption. Since we can never fully integrate our, you know, this excess into our life, we might call it an infinite craving of nothing which describes all subjects. And so Paul has described in great detail elsewhere the punishing effects of this orientation. Sin is its own punishment. It is the, the law here, and, and we need to make a distinction, the law is not suspended. It is the orientation to the law. It's the orientation to life that is, you know, suspended with its punishing effects. Circumcision is nothing. He's saying the law in this sense. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the com keeping the commandments of God. What he is describing in practical detail is how we can now actually be virtuous. How we can now actually be loving. How we can keep the law. He says that, right? We can keep the commands. So what is suspended is not the law, but the punishing orientation, the self-punishing orientation, the masochistic, sadistic orientation to the law. In fact, we might put it this way, there is a full identification with the law, with the law of love as it is found in Christ, the summation of the law. But the misorientation to the law, the misorientation to ethnicity, the misorientation to gender, to social status, to the symbolic world of humans is punishment and sacrifice, masochism and sadism. We live in an economy of sacrifice. We would always sacrifice what we have for what we do not have. 
I believe human religion and culture is built on this economy. And regrettably, Christianity is sometimes confused with a sacrificial economy. This is Anselm's doctrine of divine satisfaction. This is Calvin's doctrine of penal substitution. Both describe economies of sacrifice that simply incorporate Christ as the object of sacrifice. In this world, punishment and death are at the center of things. And Paul makes it clear this sort of masochistic, symbolic order is passing away. It is not that the world per se is passing away, but the forms which constitute the human world are passing away. And so the great danger is that we may take the forms of human society and make them primary. And that we attempt to establish our identity through these forms. And this is the principle of death. We mistake the principle of death for the principle of life. We would establish forever and as primary, Paul says, what is passing away. This world's values. This world's situation. It's ephemeral. It's of no importance. It is nothing, Paul says, in terms of the kingdom of God. Circumcision, uncircumcision, male, female, married, unmarried. Paul uses a word here that's very interesting. It refers to a surgical procedure in 19 to 21, the equivalent of body modification. Something we know something about today, right? He's addressing the situation of Christians who had been born and raised as Jews or who had become converts to Judaism at an earlier stage. And Paul insists, Do not, you don't become a better Christian by seeking to cover over, by undergoing a surgical procedure, which was apparently available, to cover over circumcision. The Jews, you know, who wish they would maintain their social status. They would go to the gymnasium with the Gentiles. They might have been afraid that their Jewish identity in some circles would uh, expose them to ridicule. Body modification, Paul says, is not necessary for your identity as a Christian. It is not that just circumcision, but there is the sense that the symbolic forms of which circumcision is only one are not determinative. He says in 29 to 30, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as if not. These things are not binding. The principle Paul is working with is summed up uh, with the understanding that the circumstance in which we find ourselves is fully accepted, but it's not determinative of who you are. It's not definitive. The letter of the law kills. As the law, the letter, the symbolic world can be made to weigh too much and to bear too much meaning. The one who attempts to gain the world, ironically, loses the world. But he who would sacrifice himself for my sake, 
He will gain life. He will inherit the kingdom. He will inherit all things. Identity, then, is not to be found in marriage, in gender, in social status, in ethnicity. This is the source of our anxiety. This is the source of despair. I want to be what I am not, and therefore I sacrifice what I am. The death of Christ, I believe, is the exposure of this obscene economy of sacrifice. To state it in Pauline terms, the exposure of the deception of sin in regard to the law which killed me. It's killing us. And the wholehearted service of God which Paul is describing, maybe, you know, in the colloquium, bloom where you are planted. Don't worry about trying to become something you are not. Do not abandon your marital commitments, but do not imagine those commitments are definitive of who you are. The church is a community that embraces circumcised, uncircumcised, married, single, ethnicity, you know, status as a slave, husband and wife. These are all subordinated and made stable in the overriding status of our relationship in the body of Christ. You know, to imagine the social order is definitive is to miss precisely the work of Christ. Christ's death directly addresses the problem of a subject caught up in this delusion, this fantasy, this dissatisfaction. The dissatisfaction of a continual sacrifice to achieve to overcome, to attain an excess. And I believe we confuse this excess with God. The Corinthians may feel compelled to divorce an unbelieving spouse. Paul addresses this. You know, once they become Christian, Paul tells them, remain married if the unbelieving spouse is willing. To widows and widowers, and we believe this may include Paul himself, he advises, he says, well, remain as I do. My wife has died, it seems to be saying. I don't feel the need to remarry. In marriage and divorce, he follows Jesus' command. You know, in Greek culture, divorce was pervasive. Uh, Seneca, philosopher of the day, said you could count a woman's age according to the number of husbands she had. A Greek man could pronounce his divorce. He'd just say, be gone. And that was the divorce. It was an accomplished fact. The pursuit of excess as a pursuit of love will result in serial marriages, continually seeking love in all the wrong places. The desire for life and love indicates its absence. And this bind of pursuing it in the law, like that of attempting to establish ourselves through, you know, this is the original sin. You will be like gods, knowing good and evil. This describes Paul's frustrated pursuit in chapter 7, when he himself, before he meets Christ, he says, there's two laws at work in me. The law of my mind and the law of my body are waging war. I see a different law in the members of my body, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? 
anxiety, despair, rule in this wretched man. And Paul's entire point in this chapter is freedom from this sort of anxiety. His point in Corinthians is to free from, from anxiety so as to love. That's where he's heading, you know, in chapter 13. I want you to be free from concern, he says in verse 32. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Thus, even for the married, he is saying, this is not your primary concern. And in Greek society, marriage involved really the merging of two families, much more than in our individualistic society. Marriage entailed obligations to two families, the commitment of a father, a householder, a citizen, a breadwinner, obligations in the social, political, economic dimensions. And the husband and wife certainly gained status, public status, but there were many strings attached. This was a full-time sort of obligation. Marriage, Paul says, is no longer the primary thing about you, but your identity in Christ is, and this will put marriage in its proper place. So Paul wants to Christians to avoid distraction and anxiety. He wants to free people up for the love of a deeper sort that he's coming to in chapters 13 that describes love that seeks the welfare of the other. Love, I believe, is made impossible where social, financial, ethnic pressures constrain us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. I believe these are precisely the fortresses we're bringing down. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. There's an alternative world. There's an alternative system of knowledge. But we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, he says. Taking thought captive means that it is no longer structured by symbolic orders of gender, marriage, ethnicity, and these values. As he says in regards to one's ability to give in this chapter, or in, in 2 Corinthians, if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have. I'm afraid we're continually worried about what we do not have. He says, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Far from relinquishing or turning from marriage and needs of the body, Paul has dealt very explicitly with physical, sexual needs. Paul has no interest whatsoever, though, in appearances, abilities, character, as if they are free of the body. We, we might state it this way, Paul is only concerned about work of the body, what takes place in it. But we have to understand what he means by the body. The body is where faith lives and where man surrenders to God's lordship. It is the sphere in which we serve. I believe the orientation to sin is an orientation to disembodiment, to departure, to disincarnate. 
attitudes. The body now is not simply my body, but the body of Christ. And he's going to explain this. You know, can the hand say to the eye or the foot say to the head? No, that I don't need you. The conclusion, verse 35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to, to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.